This is Plate Mark. My name is Ann Schaefer and I am your host. I've got a special treat for you today. This is a two-parter episode with my sister podcast, Hello Print Friend. Hello, Miranda. Miranda and I decided to band together and do a two-part interview with one person, Luther Davis. And he is the subject of my interview today. He is the head of the print shop at the newly opened, about a year long, Powerhouse Arts in Gowanus, Brooklyn. They are doing amazing and fabulous things. It's quite an incredible facility. We are doing it as a two-parter. If you are interested in Luther's past in his early life and how he came to love prints in the first place, you want to go check out his interview with Miranda at Hello Print Friend. And if you want to hear about the present occurrences at Powerhouse Arts and its future, you want to stick with me and listen to our talk. We talked for a long time about all sorts of things, so hopefully you'll love it. One more thing, if you want more Anne and Miranda collaborations, and you're going to be at New York Print Week next week, if you can believe it, join us for our coffee meetup. We're going to meet up on Friday morning, October 28th at 10 o'clock, right before everyone can waltz on into the print fair. We'll be at the Javits Center VIP Lounge, which is just outside of the doors into the fair. So we hope to see you there. All right, housekeeping. I identify as a cishet white woman, and I use the pronouns she, her. I record plate mark in Baltimore, Maryland, the land of the Piscataway Conway people. Images will be over at platemarkpodcast.com. And please do me a favor and hit support and donate. Help me keep the lights on here at Platemark. I really appreciate it. All right, let's get rolling. Luther, it's wonderful to see you. Welcome to Platemark. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Han. I've, uh, I'm a big fan, listen to just about every episode, and I love the format. So, Oh, it's thanks. Yeah, it's, um, it's been really fun. I get to meet and learn about all kinds of people and all kinds of uh, moments in the ecosystem. It's amazing to me how many roles there are and how different everybody's roles are. And, you know, you can just find your own niche and, and off, you, off you're running. All right. Sure. So can you explain who you are for our people listening? My name's Luther Davis. Uh, he, him. I'm the uh, director and one of the master printers at Powerhouse Arts Print Shop. We are located on the Gowanus Canal in Brooklyn, historically Lenape lands. Gowanus is named uh, a Canarsie Lenape chief, so it's like oh. part part of the language uh, here that we don't acknowledge. So I'd like to acknowledge that. Powerhouse Arts is a nonprofit that was started about a decade ago to preserve a, a power, former Brooklyn Rapid Transit power station. So back before that, the MTA companies had their own train lines. And so the Brooklyn Rapid Transit station that we're in, uh, the power plant, I should say, comprises of turbine hall and a boiler house. And it was built about 120 years ago. And the turbine hall is the 120-year-old structure that Powerhouse was formed to protect and restore and turn into an arts something at the time. We had a series of roundtables with artists and fabricators to discuss what could be a meaningful contribution to the New York real estate, uh, art real estate, if you will. We settled on the fact that over the course of a summer that fabricators, and this is not, not unique to New York or Brooklyn, but fabricators are being pushed out of the center of many of our urban areas and industrial zones are being shrunk or done away with. 
and that for artists in New York, they're having to travel to three states to get things made. And, and so, you know, if you're an independent artist and you've got to go to a metal shop here and a wood shop here and a print shop here, you're spending a lot of your time, you know, traveling. And so as we look at the landscape and the changing landscape uh, on the Guanas Canal, we have to acknowledge the fact that it was an industrial zone for most of its history. And so it has recently been rezoned to be residential. And we landmarked our building and landmarked it industrial right before the switch. Oh, well done. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting time. You know, as we look at our print shop windows, we see 8,000 apartment units being added <laughs> right now around us. I believe it. It is, it is wild, but they've cleaned up. the Part of the emphasis between the sort of revitalization of this neighborhood is that they've cleaned up the canal, which is a super fun site. They've spent four years-ish uh, dredging it, and now they're currently capping it with layers of uh, charcoal, excuse me, carbon, gravel, clay, and then it'll be capped. And there will be 18 acres of parks running up and down it. So it's really an interesting time to be here. But as we, you know, as we were sitting here building our shop out, we we're watching wood shops and metal shops, one-story buildings being knocked down. Oh, of course. Um, so, you know, part of our call is to preserve these jobs, pre preserve the spaces, but also educate the public as to what fabricators do and how vital they are to the art ecosystem. Okay. Before we go too much farther, I want to say that this is a part two, a two-parter <laughs> that we're doing with our sister podcast, Hello Print Friend. And you and Miranda have already had your conversation where you went through your past and how you got to where you are. And our plan is to talk about the present and the future. Yes. Right. This so, is quite an honor to be uh, <laughs> to be this mashup and and through collaboration. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Right. It's yes. In keeping. Um, yeah. Miranda and I have have each been on each other's podcasts, and um, and we travel in very similar manners, hitting on different sectors of the ecosystem as it were but there are these moments when we intersect and when we both were you know because you guys just opened powerhouse arts that we both had contacted you and she said why don't we do it together so here we are yeah yeah i was actually uh in instagram uh which is luther.printshop plug in my instagram it, um <laughs> we're dming i'm like well i've already agreed to one so and I, i'm so happy that you were able to um speak about yeah, of course, the no, mashup well, the ecosystem, I love that you use the word ecosystem because it truly is an ecosystem, you know? Yeah. It, I don't know when that sort of started being used, but I hear more and more people using it. I'm like, yes, it's catching on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. So just, I know you talked a lot of, with Miranda about where you have come from, but can you just quickly tell us how you got to where you are? Oh, yeah. The recap is that I uh, studied prints in a liberal arts school. Uh, and uh, did not get into any graduate programs. So I took continuing ed print classes at Ohio State and got my MFA at Ohio State. Took a two-year program, turned into three years with a continuing ed. So I'm a big believer in, in adult education because it's what got me where I am. And then I painted houses, set up my own shop um, in Columbus. Did not like working by myself in my own shop. Painting houses during, during the day and, and going back and being by yourself was just not what, not what I could do. Um, moved to New York and got a job in a, a fine art print shop 
Um, and some of my first jobs were working with art heroes, picking up the phone and, uh, you know, this is Bob. And I'm like, Bob who? Bob Rosenberg, <laughs> you know? And you're like, oh, I should learn how to talk politely on the phone. That's you never one. know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. And, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting time, 90s. Uh, we were in the meatpacking district. There was art everywhere. But, you know, there were shifts of actual meat coming in and the culture in the meatpacking district changed every six hours and there's a vibrant uh nightlife there um so you can just sit etching a plate my first job was to etch a richard Serra plate it was a quarter inch thick piece of copper and i etched it like throughout the night and i just looked out the window and watched in awe how amazing new york was so I really fell in love with new york and then from there i uh was that shop became axel editions which for 15 years was in uh, downtown-ish Brooklyn, and then that uh, tragically folded with the death of the owner of XL, and we joined uh, Powerhouse as a way, as like a test case for their, their model of preserving fabrication, and eventually became power, part of Powerhouse. We were briefly something called BRT Print Shop, Brooklyn Rapid Transit Print Shop, oh. um, which was a, a fun little three-year window, and then now we're part of uh, Powerhouse Arts. And uh, currently, I have a wonderful print team. Some of them have been with me for 23 years. Uh, so it's a very seasoned team of John Bartolo, Nellie Davis, Dennis Hiroshik, Chris Kinsler, Dana Zinzer, and Zaire Anderson. If I ever say I printed something, it, that's a false. It's, we work in teams. We always work together. We do roughly, we call them projects because not everything's an addition. We do a lot of screen printing. Screen printing is our primary print form. We also do some etching, some woodcut, and some very large, like 10-foot-wide digital printing. But screen printing is what we're known for. So screen printing being very adaptable, very fluid. We're doing a lot of one-off screen prints on weird materials, big sculptures, little things. It's uh, you know, an industrial process, truly, that we've, we're, we're treating sort of a mishmash of experimental printmaking, also, you know, printing on architectural things if needed. So really it's, we don't, we try to do everything that comes our way if we can. But back to the ecosystem, there are print shops around us. Before the pandemic, uh, pulled in Brooklyn, uh, International then International Print Center did a just a showcase of like 19 print shops in Brooklyn. And, and they weren't able to get to all the print shops. There still were many more print shops that they didn't quite touch on. Uh, Roberta Waddell was the curator of that one, wasn't she? Yes, and yes. Uh, Samantha uh, Rip Ripner. Yeah, Ripner. Ripner. Right, Samantha Ripner. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're both uh, fabulous colleagues. I love them yeah. both. Oh yeah, and and so much fun to work with. I I was sort of like a guest inspirer to, towards like the vibrancy of Brooklyn, um, and Brooklyn has a huge history. The ecosystem for. After the pandemic, I'll just speak to this briefly. After the pandemic, <laughs> every Friday I tried to visit a different print shop. Oh, and cool. uh, every Friday I would find out about three print shops I'd never heard of. So it really is uh, a huge, I mean, huge ecosystem here. The uh, transportation department has their own print shop. The sanitation department has their own print shop and their own artisan residence program. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, and we're not even getting back that there's the New York Times and there's an industry magazine and there's, uh, you know, Dugall and there's these huge firms that do massive printing and billboards. Right now on the Brooklyn Library, the entire front of it is printed Jay-Z lyrics and done in the most masterfully 
I'm like, the, the research just on the adhesive alone to stick to a building. So, I mean, it's a part, uh, it's around you all the time. And so that, you know, within walking distance, like a very, very short walk, I'm at, at Jungle Press, like they're kitty corner to us. But we have Radix Media, uh, New York Print Graphics, Do Good Press, uh, Carousel's Press, K-Rock. I mean, I can, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, Bush Print Lab, there's just so many. And I, I can walk to all these, well, maybe not all the way to K-Rock. And then we're not even getting into Queens, right? That's just in Brooklyn. So it really is a vibrant ecosystem. And it's been this way for a long time. Uh, the Gowanus Canal, if you look back 100 years ago, so 1922, Yolano, and Yolano's still here. Yolano's one of the major manufacturers of screen printing emulsions and, and ruby lip. They invented that, as far as I know. They're here. They're a few blocks away, and they're still here. Um, they're now a part of Kiwo, also an amazing company. A hundred years ago, and I did the research, and a hundred years ago, 38.5% of the country's ink was made here. Like, what? Yeah, was made wow. in New York and most of it on the Gowanus Canal. So when we're talking about cleaning up the canal, we're really talking about like uh, paint and ink, like runoff. No one cared a hundred years about, though, about the canal. In Red Hook, which is a community not far from us, they were making paint and varnishes. So, you know, there was a huge industry of print here in New York and as always has been. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, like there, there are some small print shops in Baltimore, but like I couldn't go, I could probably go for maybe two months on Fridays and hit all of them. Yeah, I, I just, uh, it's really pretty, pretty fun. Also, there's like, I'll print on anything shops too, mm -hmm. where you walk by and you're like, they have like mugs and iPhones. And I mean, there's like, so there's this customization niche market here. Every 10 blocks, there's one of those print shops too. But Powerhouse Arts is unique in that we also have um, a ceramic shop that's really beautiful. We have um, metal and wood, and uh, we have you know, large CNC machine, and we just have a, a Workspace 11 a metal fabricator move in, so they have a water jet cutter. So that as a group within this building, we're doing some cross-media collaboration it is really pretty exciting. So, so speaking of the future, this building is designed to have many, many um, state-of-the-art, and when I say state-of-the-art, the state-of-the-art state ventilation, uh, plumbing, electricity. From the beginning, this building is built around health and safety of artists and craftspeople in a way that has never really been thought out fully. So we had some wonderful engineers on this project asking each of the areas like what do you need to be safe what's your ideal conditions and then and then upping that future proofing so that we can add on and and build out so this building currently has some spaces that will steward um, and some programming will be added over the next few years um, the ceramic shop has a digital ceramics printer that i'm dying to oh, use cool. so you can use uh you can print glazes, uh, basically, in digital. Um, and they just got a RAM press, which takes two molds and squishes them together with clay inside. As far as I'm concerned, that's, that's printy, right? And so you can squish two molds together and get, um, get uh, multiples that way. So I'm excited for that. Uh, and slip casting and such. And wow. So, yeah. so my question has to do with the organization of the whole. So as, as 
different fabrication elements come in and move in. Are they independents that are renting space from this larger organization or are they co-op members of Powerhouse Arts? How does it work? Um, that's a great question. Currently, Powerhouse Arts official programming are ceramics, print, and something called public art, which is a, a loose term that deals with larger scale, maybe they're small scale, but public works, for example, that might be installed in the High Line or in, in Times Square that bring in fabricators from multiple disciplines and sort of uh, coalesces around a project. So they project manage big projects through multiple fabricators and in-house as well. And then there are spaces that we're stewarding, and those spaces are going to be slowly filling as we find like-minded nonprofits. So the, the way that they enter the space uh, will be flushed out as each program comes in. Um, so we are trying to do some development around some areas so we can you know, raise funds to start programs um, and have like bespoke programming. So I, what, what we've found out is that what works for print doesn't necessarily work in, in ceramics. So ceramics is set up as a membership shop with, with some amazing professional fabrication services. So it's not a teaching shop. They don't teach classes, but it's all geared around working artists and preserving their time. And their time is sacred. So the, the artists uh, won't be interrupted by 101 type style classes, but we might bring in experts in the field to teach. And so that's, I don't sort of edge around your question a little bit because as each room is filled, it might be a community, uh, a community class or something that fills the, fills the space for just like a year or just for a few months. So I think that as the programming slowly shapes, and we've only really, we've only been in the building for about a year, a little over a year, year and a half. So it's a growing model. And we're, as we add on people with expertise, that model is changing. Yeah, right. No, that makes sense, I think. So when before we started rolling, you were walking me around the space. It's gigantic. Can you describe the physical plant? The physical plant is 170,000 square feet. Uh, we have, as I mentioned, some bespoke areas that are designed to be wood and metal and print and ceramics. And then we have a large event hall that is a place for performances and uh, print fairs. Um, Putting that, I'm just, going to keep, I'm just going to keep saying that until it happens, but it will happen. Uh, fairs and uh, you know community events and uh, and rentals as well. So a way of subsidizing our programming is to rent the space out for you know like-minded sort of events. So we had a Creative Time Gala here. Um, creative Time is an amazing New York arts organization that does public work, artwork. Um, and so there's a, there's a queue of some really interesting events that are going to be happening in the hall. Um, but, we've just but no weddings? No weddings. No weddings. <laughs> it would be very arty if they are. But yeah, it would be a great place to have a wedding. It um, would be a great. I, I'm amazed it's yeah. not on the table. You know, the arts in New York is, uh, once again, use the word ecosystem, very diverse. So there's uh, fashion you know, fashion shoots that will be happening and fashion launches. It depends on the season, what's going to be happening there, I imagine. Because every every arts industry has their own season, right? So print right. fair is like around Halloween, right? That's <laughs> our, our, our time to shine, but there, everyone else has other times. So it'll be fun to see. As I mentioned earlier, we've preserved something called the Turbine Hall, which was a five-story uh, Romanesque, Neo, I don't even know. I'm not an architect, but I think Romanesque uh, barn. Uh, so it was just a five-story barn that had six four-story turbines in it. 
and that generated all of the electricity for the subway streetcars and trains in Brooklyn, and we had streetcars back then. And then on the other side of the building was, that was knocked down somewhere in 50 was something called the boiler house, which generated all of the steam for the turbines. So truly steam era technology, that was knocked down. And initially they burned coal, and so you can imagine what that did to the site. We have remediated the site, um, cleaned up the site to EPA standards, and are monitoring the groundwater um, and making sure that we, as stewards of this, of this land, are keeping it clean. And trying to adopt safe artist practices, not only health and safety, but disposal of chemistry, protecting the water in and water out, protecting the land around us. So it's key part of our programming is environmental initiatives and also fantasizing about how we can, you know, the waste stream from the metal shop we're hoping to use uh, in the print shop, right, in our intaglio processes. And so what, what does that mean? And where, where can our waste ink go to benefit a community print shop at some point? And uh, not that it's waste, it's, you know, you mix too much ink. So a lot of thought is to how we can be sort of self-contained uh, health and safety and environmentally, which is fun to think about. Right, of course. So was there an original mastermind who thought all the way through these minor permutations as no. life went on? Or would, like, well, how did this all come about? So it re so um, the nonprofit was started by Josh Recknitz, who wanted to preserve this building. This building, and I've glossed over one of its most glorious time periods, was known as the Bat Cave. Uh, when it was unguarded for about a decade. And it was a place for artists to uh, squat and and to make work. And so there's graffiti all over, over the building that we've kept. We haven't tried to clean up the building. Uh, there's a whole community in here for about a decade uh, using the space. So in honoring them, uh, their time, we are preserving a lot of what they did to the building as far as graffiti, but we're also trying to preserve the, the, the mindset of being welcoming and taking on work from as many different groups as possible. Key part of the visioning of this is, uh, and this came through the series of roundtables I mentioned that were hosted by Triple Canopy, which is, if you don't know, they're a very interesting arts organization. Part of the, of the, when we talk about health and safety, we also talk about that the access to the arts, especially fabrication arts, can be limited and intimidating. So if you approach a, a printer and you're not using the jargon of the print process, it's hard to explain what you want. If I were to go and, and request a, a, a metal job, I, I can do it and I can assemble it in my mind, but I would be ad hocing using common, common language to describe the process. And that's really tough for artists when they are, are jumping into new areas. There's a gatekeeping that happens with fabricators, and if you're not using the right language, you maybe get an automatic 20% surcharge, right? <laughs> um, how can we lower barriers for entry? How can we make sure that people who have ideas can get access to fabricators and not limited out of the gate based on their way of speaking about their project? So that part of the vision quest for what this was was thought out pretty well through our roundtables. Certainly there was a pre-pandemic model where the whole building was populated by powerhouse. We had 200 employees and none of the windows opened because it was a self-contained environment. And the pandemic that's been scaled back to a degree to be, uh, the windows all open now, um, so we can get some fresh air if needed. But also to think about what it means to have something that's a little bit more nimble to the community needs. So they, they will be popped 
the spaces will be stewarded over time and sort of be a little bit more fluid. So if I wandered in today, I'm in Baltimore, so I won't. Don't worry. No, you you will be wandering in <laughs> at some point, I insist. <clears throat> no, but you'll I'm... need to make an appointment. <laughs> well, there's so, yeah, there, there that's go. a good yes. thing to know. Yeah. yeah. Are there artist studios in the offing? Like so there there's no artist studios per se. Um, there's no like white rooms with you know white walls uh, <laughs> and a sink. There's there are. An, a lot of those in New York, and there's a lot within walking distance of us. There's some amazing arts. Uh, there's a can factory, Kitty Corners, Art Gowanus. There's a major uh, effort to preserving spaces for artists, quote unquote. And usually, they're not saying they're not thinking printmakers, right? They're thinking painters, drawers, sculptors when they when they're thinking out. And I'm who are they? I don't know who they are, but <laughs> yeah, like. I, ever explaining that I'm an artist and then saying over you know, my 30 year history of doing this and then saying I'm a printer and then explaining that I don't print t-shirts. Um, <laughs> you know, I know that most people think of art as painting. There's a lot of spaces for that. So in this building, it's much more about fabrication spaces, artists having bench space uh, or, um, you know, shelf space or locker space so that they can come in, work on, work on their projects and in an environment with a lot of tools, a lot of other people working on things and then leave and come back the next day and keep, pick up their project, like not take it off the table sort of mentality. But there's no like solo, solo booths for people to work in. Okay. I just feel like the art world is, as you said, you know, the, the painters are all in their own little spaces and then there's the rest of the people who are working in teams to accomplish things. And it's like you're the, Powerhouse Arts is this utopian other, this other side of it, yes. right? <laughs> well, part of that other side is that um, there is the, the myth of the solo artist is how you sell art, right? In the galleries, you go in, you see an artist's work. There are plenty of solo artists. There are plenty of, you know, the, the bulk of artists are solo to some degree, but the art industry has a huge army of of fabricators that are either working directly with artists in the artist studio or as um, outside contractors. And so part of Powerhouse mission is to really showcase that side of the art industry, to pull back the curtain on the fact that when you go to see an artist show at a major gallery in New York, there might be 30 people who worked on a piece. They're not named. There's some artists who will name all their fabricators, which is what we would like more of. I just recently... Uh, had a discussion with a, a publisher that we were going to talk with. Part of our, our contract is that when asked, you've acknowledged that Powerhouse Arts print shop made your print. You know, you're, you're not we're, you're not allowed to hide it or claim that you made it. And so we got into the discussion of why that's important and why it's important to showcase that other people make artists. That there's we we want this industry to be uh, in the lens so that more people can enter it. Uh, Great from you know if you're if you love making something there are jobs to make stuff but in school at least I wasn't taught that you could be a collaborating fabricator on that's just not something we we're taught it was the solo art path and there's a huge a huge industry of fabrication in New York City what's interesting though is that if you were to do like a U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics search of New York like New York is a cultural artist hub, you would find that there are very few 
artists. There's more artists in Texas and Alaska than they're in New York. And that's what? because, yes, and here's why. It's a loophole in the system. <laughs> if you're a self-employed artist, you don't register on the, Euro, on the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics. So here's the catch-22 of the New York art scene. I can't throw a needed eraser out the window without hitting an artist. <laughs> but they all are like, on their taxes, they're self-employed. So they don't, they don't actually fit within yeah. this niche, right? But we, as artists, are not self We're working together. So and really this, yeah, I, I, I'm long-winded way of saying, like, <laughs> let's, let's talk about art the way it's really made. And that's really what Powerhouse's mission is. Well, and I think, I've said this before, I can't remember which episode, even the painters, like you mentioned before we started rolling that Amy, you were working on an Amy Sherald project. And we visited her studio at Mana Contemporary a couple of years ago. And there were six assistants in there finishing the painting. Mm-hmm. You know, the blades of grass, like not, you yeah. know, just yeah. like in the old days when Benjamin West had 25 kids doing the drapery right. or whatever, right? right? right. So it's it, this, the myth of the solo artist, I think you're absolutely right, is complete bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, what's funny is when, you know, I'm trying to, like, put, pin, not pin the blame, but I'm trying to figure out where that, where that shift happened. Because during the Renaissance, there, no, one, no one had this idea that it was a factory. Like, right? Michelangelo had a team. He had a crew. You know? He had a, you know, he had a project manager, right? And he, he had patrons that were coming in and eating wine and cheese, you know? So I think I'm... I'm not going to blame Leo Castelli since I just mentioned I printed his 90th birthday portfolio. But at some point um, when the narrative of the solo struggling artists and their unique story became the prevalent, prevalent way of selling art, we switched, right? We switched to um, this current form of contemporary, modern. I don't know when it happened. Probably Impressionist era. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an art historian, but. Well, I. I'm, try, I'm trying to think like even even Matisse in the, you know, during the war and during the 40s, he would go to he would go to work every day in a tie in a three piece suit and paint in the morning and draw in the afternoon or vice versa. I forget, you know, that even then with his, you know, I'm all creative and all that. It was a job like his yeah. job was a painter and his daughter was the manager of the studio and she mm-hmm. was the one who was dealing with the sales and blah, blah, blah. Or maybe it was Picasso, you know, maybe it could be. But like, you know, I, for anything. those of you who can see, Anne was shaking her <laughs> fist at the sky <laughs> when she said the word Picasso. Well, um, I mean, but he's, you yeah. know, he's like, uh, I mean, it was certainly a job for yeah. him, but yeah. so I feel like he, and I, he's a pig, sorry, people. There was this sort of unending font of creativity that just kind of oozed out of the man from the time he was six to the time he died. And um, I don't, he sort he seems like he shifted everything, even printmaking, right? Like he's shifted yeah. so of much prints. of it, even though I can't stand him. But <laughs> yeah. well, let's back when Matisse and, and Picasso, they went to printmakers, right? They went to studios to make their prints, right? Absolutely. So they went to fabricators to make their prints. And those, and no one hid that back then, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I was getting my MFA and we we're talking about print and uh, once again, that's, I had a great education at Ohio State. Um, Charles Massey Jr., Philip Von Robbie, wonderful faculty, taught me so much, gave me so many opportunities. But yeah, the solo practicing artists, right, um, in print, right? And I now, by the way, I teach at Parsons New School print shop and have been for the last 
23 years, and I really try to showcase the fact that we don't work in isolation. And, and the thing that you're falling in love with working in a print shop, right, is uh, the thing that you can continue doing. You know, the print shops, you don't have to do it on your own. Granted, there are plenty of print shops that do, are solo printers. But in graduate school, name the famous printers who are only printers, right, and are, are on the walls of the museums and galleries. This is very hard to do. Uh, Karen Kuntz at that time, uh, Lazansky, I don't know who else. I mean, there was not, there's not a lot of just so, people just make prints and are in museums. They had painters, sculptors, and they did some print on the side, right? I guess, you know, the, the, uh, the idea in, when I was getting my MFA and undergrad, uh, the print shops were in the basements or being moved to ancillary facilities to make room for a computer lab. So, and I, I spoke a, a bit about this with Miranda that, you know, we were always on the move and always feeling like second-class citizens. And now I feel that print is such a part of artist practices. There are so many artists that are using print in some form or other. You just have to figure out where it lies, right? So many artists use print as the start of their paintings. Like we do a lot of print directly on canvas. Uh, print as... Um, wait, as wait, wait, of, wait, 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 wait. Printing on canvas as the base of a of an image yeah. to come. Yeah, so it's like a coloring book, right? Um, yeah. Huh. So, but you know, or print just as a finished thing on canvas too. We do a lot of one-off work where we're printing photographs on on you know a plank of wood that's beautifully primed and painted, and then that's sold as a painting, right? So there's a lot as a printmaker. You go into gallery, really digest what you're looking at because often you're looking at a print, and so you know, take some time to think about what it is, or some kind of printmaking, mark making too, like a mark made in repeat, right? So the powerhouse arts sort of approach and the approach I've always had towards, towards our print shop is that um, we, we're not necessarily trying to make additions, and that's why when we say we, we make projects. So there might be additions, or, or they might be one-offs, and we do a lot of one-off kind of work. And the, the beauty of the one-off silkscreen is that it's uh, it's not CMYK, it's not inkjet, it's real pigment, it's real materials, and luster, and sheens, and metallics, or glow-in-the-dark, or, or the artist's own blood, or actually, we scratch that, we don't do blood anymore. <laughs> Powerhouse Arts will not let us do blood anymore, but you don't want to do blood. It's a tactile process. And um, yeah. Could you, would you guys be able to do, I'm thinking of that Ed Ruscha portfolio, news, dues, pews, moos, whatever it was, and it was all printed with like, um, you know, jello and. <laughs> yeah, the jello. Uh, jello it and it's interesting when you, you print with mustard or ketchup, they, they don't look like mustard or ketchup. No. So, no, it's that, but yeah, printing foodstuffs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, silkscreen specifically is fun. And I do think we're in a golden age of printmaking um, because people use the word print. They, they say, you know, it's in the news. They 3D printed a gun, you know, and 3D printed this. And we're 3D printing human blood vessels in the hope that we can 3D print a human heart soon. So the, the word print is a very, uh, it's in the vernacular in a way that's different than it was. And people are using it, uh, thinking about Star Trek, the, you know, Earl Grey, hot sort of approach to like oh, right, right. fabricating food right in front of your face but we are talking about make 3D printing so. yeah, 3D printing <laughs> food stuffs is like you know there's a, a a laser printer that prints an image on the perfectly crafted head 
of a Guinness, you know, a pint of Guinness, right? And you can laser print like an image directly on that. So they're like, the, the print as entertainment is a new mm. form, right? The, and the act of printing uh, is a new thing. You can get amazing machines. When, when I started digitally printing, an Iris digital printer was $250,000. So no one had that. But now you can get a really high quality Epson for a f- small percentage of that. So, you know, <laughs> um, it's a good time. It's interesting. Um, I have two questions. One, first, um, and hope I get back to the second one, this idea of um, printing things onto the Guinness or whatever, all of a sudden it made me think back to years ago, I wrote a paper about um, optical aids, camera obscuras, camera lucidas, the clawed glass, whatever. And this idea that it was an entertainment to be able to see a reflection somehow contained in a smaller something or other, which is really basically a one-off print, right? Mm-hmm. It's bizarre. Like you would have a something attached to your carriage and you would watch the scenery go by as you were going down the street, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like- Rather moving, than just look out, look out the window, right? Right, yes. like moving pictures. Yes. It yes. was it's kind of this weird entertainment thing that occurred, you know, it's kind of enlightenment, endarkenment, whatever you want to call it. It's It just sort of struck me. Kind of, I mean, different in parallel to prints and actual prints that were- being made at the time but anyway sorry well i think that part of that's a part of i mean a lot of the people you interview the beauty of print is is thinking about a process in flipped in reverse uh contemplating every mark um those sort of like traditional printmaking kind of ways of of working that set you up uh for like a study process for something like is it your painter in print you're studying you're studying and you're able to create work at a much faster pace. And it's maybe a little less precious in the moment, but allows you to sort of like work towards something in the future that could be incorporated in some of the larger artist practice. But I think that now with the digital revolution and us all spending so much screen time, the, the want to get ink under your nails or is real for a, a large a large group of, of people. And, you know, the whole um, make it culture, you know, of... The, the aughts, which uh, whatever that is now, I think it's slightly different, but people investing in time and, and learning how to, you know, make a wallet out of duct tape, right? Or, but, you know, that's base level entry point, but the, the, the need for making stuff is ever present. I think print really does a great job of showcasing making because of its in multiple, you know, because you can do things in multiple, you can then get your work in multiple places. And people realize that too, you know. Rizzo, Rizzo has skyrocketed, letterpresses resurged, so screen classes are awful, you know, um, you know, people want to be doing this. We haven't, I have never said the word Rizzo on the podcast. Can you help people understand what we're talking about? Oh, yeah. So, uh, and I want to just put an asterisk by this, that I have a lot of Rizzo friends. I've never actually made a Rizzo. But, oh! <laughs> uh, so, but it is a really beautiful hybrid process. Rizograph, R-I-S-O, is... A hybrid Xerox silkscreen stencil machine, for lack of a better word. Um, there's a drum that has a color in it. And for all you Rezo printers, please excuse my, my so way of describing it. Inside is a squeegee, quote unquote, that is pushing uh, the ink as this drum rolls uh, with a stencil wrapped around it, from my understanding. It's, uh, it's silkscreen, well, it's not silkscreen, but it's stenciling uh, a color a color at a time onto the paper the substrate use and so you can print they come up in two colors so you can put in two different colors 
Uh, and they're sort of bespoke colors. There's like a, a Rezo shop might have 20 colors or however many colors. Like they're not taking two cartridges necessarily and mixing them together to create a new color. But two color machine, so you could print two colors, take out those cartridges of color and put in a new two colors with the new images on them and print two more colors. And you, in theory, could do that for a while. It's a, it's a neat process because it is has a built-in noise, uh, it has a built-in character that is identifiable, it has a look, it has a smell, right? It has all of the things that people <laughs> identify with a tangible art form, and it's, and it's fast. And it's really fast. So Yeah, they're cool. We, I just, we saw a demo of, um, of a Riso studio in Kansas City, where are we? Lawrence, probably Lawrence, and it was like an old school Xerox machine, and they were co-opting these old technology, old quote unquote technologies, yeah. to create this whole new form. It's fascinating. They're really they're cool, but they definitely have a look. Yeah, and and you and for those who use utilize that look, it's like it's it's a vernacular in itself, which I I love. And so Silkscreen with, with also a stencil, you know, we're talking about you can, how you can put anything through it. It has that look of a of a screen in many ways, you know, in, in a matrix. Um, I really love it, and that, but you know that's as you're in print. There's been moments in time where you know processes are at risk of dying, and then artists and and makers pick them up. And I think Rezo, the Rezo phenomenon, really saved Rezo as a company because it was a odd uh, odd outlier of off uh, of office equipment. And you know, mimeograph, it's very similar to what a mimeograph might have been. And uh, for those of you who don't know, mimeograph was also a stencil process. You wrapped on a drum and a special solvent ink that ran <laughs> in school. Like in sixth grade, we get these freshly mimeographed purple papers with our tests on it, and we'd all pick them up and smell them. And we we're basically huffing thinner. <laughs> like, but they smelled great, you know? Uh, straight out of the memory, oh, this is fresh. Whole class getting high right before they take the test. Um, yeah, so, you know, we're, and that, that it's a, a modern mimeograph in many ways. Right, we're betraying our age, people. Yep. So, <laughs> so you keep using the term silkscreen, Luther. Okay, yeah, so, ha. Ha, ha. Uh, all right, so, <laughs> so yes, I, I actually, in writing, call it screen printing. Me too. And I don't use the word serigraph very often or serigraphy. Screen printing is my preferred way of speaking about the process. We don't use silk anymore. And I have this running gag, like no one wants, instead of silk, we use polyester and no one wants to hear a polyester print. Um, <laughs> so, but silk screen is what is in the vernacular. Most people know the process as, so I'm sort of defaulting to that in this moment. But screen printing, one word, is how I refer to the process. Me too. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm flipping it around a bit. Um, and what's interesting about the screen printing industry is that it is mostly, and I mentioned this early, people think of t-shirts. So when I'm describing the process, I'm like, have you ever watched a t-shirt? Have you ever made a t-shirt? And 90% of the people at some point, there are, they have made a t-shirt in high school or whatever, they know that process, right? The, of a squeegee uh, going over a screen um, and pushing ink onto something. Right. Yeah. Thanks for calling me out on that. Well, <laughs> you know, as a as a as a uh, former cataloger, terminology was very important, and you know, almost maniacally so. So, 
I would do data scrubs and try and find all the silk screen and switch them all to screen print or whatever. And never serigraphy people, please. It was just, this is what's so fascinating about this whole thing. And I'm glad we're circling back to it because as you were describing all of the various shops in Brooklyn, you were talking about like the, the bespoke mug printing or the whatever. And that the line between quote unquote fine art silk screens, screen printing, serigraphy, blah, blah, mm -hmm. is so close. It is. It's and there. morphs to, like, is it yeah. art? The, is the drop that comes across the Brooklyn Museum with the Jay-Z lyrics, is that art? Or is it a commercial rap? Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, and it's how different is it from the thing that you're making for Amy Sherald? Yeah. Well, you know, that's so I really think that that line is so fine and and it's always being crossed that um, that the distinction shouldn't be there, right? And so it's I mean obviously I'm like not going to treat my coffee mug that's been printed unless it's been printed by someone I know with the same <laughs> kind of respect, right? That I am going to be uh, the fine art print that someone gives me. But I can buy my mug yep. for fifteen bucks, and I yep. can buy a Amy Sherald print from you for five thousand dollars. Yes. So, so, right. Um, uh, the workmanship that goes into what, quote unquote, fine art now is really blurred. So that's something interesting as a, as a fabricator in the fine art world um, where there might be a lot of choices. I don't advertise to uh, do digital printing, right? The large format Ebsen's uh, archival print is how we're calling them now, but they were called G-Clay for a moment. Um, and hate, always hated that word. So... I don't advertise that we do digital printing because I want to be a screen printer, but there's a lot of work that goes into digital printing. And so when you get into the fine art realm, what is the fine art digital print coming out of an Epson or Canon versus coming out of someone's office? It's the same machine, right? It really has to do with like the nuance of paper, the nuance of approach to color matching, and, and the nuance of packing the stuff at the end of the day. Like that's what they don't tell you when you enter into like, uh, a job in the arts is that you're also going to be packing art all day long, right? You're, so, like, the, the handling, the safe handling of stuff is a delineation between an arts fabricator and no. a copy shop, right? It's like, oh. you're coming up and it's carefully, archivally packed and you can, you know, take it take it on the subway, right? Versus, I don't know, a shopping bag that's shoved into it. Right. And also intention, yeah, well, certainly intention, but, yeah. you know, for artists making a choice between do I print this at uh, FedEx, you know, or at something a little bit higher up, um, I think most artists, given the chance, and they're starting, there's nothing wrong with getting a good quality print at, at a bulk service provider, right? So the main thing is to be making the thing. And there's a lot of print shops, as we mentioned, that can put your image on anything. So I think the, the beauty of the age we're in now is that you can slowly dip your toe in these waters um, in many different ways. With screen printing, when you have a print that is basically large, flat areas of color and you're a museum person, and you're not handling it properly. <laughs> Hell yeah. It's true. What happens? The safe handling of, of paper is a skill in itself. And I wanted to say that we aren't white glove handlers. When we're printing, we have borders that we're expecting to cut off. When you handle 100 sheets of paper in a row, you, you might as well have white gloves on because your hands are, are, are clean by the time you get to your... Your third print, one of our presses goes up to 50 by 100 inches print area. 
And there's no way one human being can hold that safely without destroying it, and especially when it's covered with wet ink, right? You really have to know how to handle it. We let the weight of the paper dictate how it's going to be held. We usually try to hold it in a U shape, holding opposite corners, and never bend the paper back on itself. If we're using the U, it's an AU without any serifs, right? So you're not bending, <laughs> you're not bending the edges back. But you do that enough, and you, you can be very literally flipping with it. You, you can throw paper and have it land without damaging if you know how to handle it. In screen printing, you might fill up a, a rack of, you know, usually a rack is 50 shelves. Um, you might fill up a rack in 10 minutes. And so, you know, so you're handling paper at a very fast pace. Maybe 10 minutes is a bit of exaggeration. <laughs> One could. <laughs> One was really cruising. Um, but the handling of paper, and so you, you uh, we mentioned packing. So packing paper, if you're buying a print, if you're into it, you're trying to figure out whether it's going to come flat or rolled, and how do you roll a print. And the amount of money that you pay is basically the state of the, how many tubes and how much glassine and, you know, what's going to be around it. Those I, tubes I recently, are expensive. Yeah, Oof. they are. I, I recently am buying paper from the West Coast, and it's my first time buying paper from a distributor, and they're going to ship it rolled. And I, first I started to correct, like, like, I really would love it. And then I'm like, no, you handle your paper. It'll get to me safe, and then we'll, we'll judge the best way because they're sending me 50 very thin sheets of paper. And so they oh. roll them, and I think that might be the better well, because if you send them flat, depending on how big they yeah. are, if you send them flat, the ease of having something bad happen versus yeah. in a roll is yeah. gigantic. So there is 100% agree. And there's a, a general rule if you're sending stuff is like, how far can you throw it? Imagine yourself delivering it. And how far can you throw it? If you feel that your package can be thrown like five feet, it will be thrown on the truck, off the truck. Right. So you have to consider the distance one can chuck it. <laughs> and I once like uh, had UPS absolutely destroy something I sent, and like the artist was in Texas, they blamed me. Basically, UPS destroyed this small crate I made because they threw it was a small crate that could be thrown, and on, it couldn't manage to be thrown. It was destroyed the first time they threw it. So then they rolled a dolly over the prints too. So there are like dolly wheel marks over <laughs> part of the prints, and then they shoved it into a box, like just a random box uh, with like just. Just shut. Like they made a loose <laughs> roll and put it in a box, and then it went there. So there was a disaster. And the artist's like, I can't believe after all this time you sent the prints this way. And they document like, no, that's not how we sent it. So back. Long story short, imagine how far you can throw your package, and plan on that that landing. But what I was also thinking about was the surface of the ink sitting on the print. Like you can scrape your little fingernail across it and you get this awful scratch ding thing. And the surface is basically ruined. Yeah. You can look at the surface and know how easily it's going to be damaged. Certain prints and certainly traditional screen prints of the matte oil base era have this luscious, beautiful, chalky quality and are just waiting to get damaged. Big, wet relief prints, not so much. Depending on the acrylic ink, yes, you could scratch it or no, you could not scratch it. You know, there's Speedball Professional grade ink, which scratches less than their non-professional. And they only make one color in professional. Speedball, if you're listening, make your, <laughs> I love your professional black, but you could make a few other colors in the oh, professional Yeah. <laughs> A big fan of Speedball. We use TW Graphics inks in our shop quite a lot and NASDAQ inks as well. And they each have a different handling. So you're, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the more the more stuff noise that's going on in the image, like it's the big flat areas that are the, the big problem, right? Yes. So yeah. So like, well, if there's a if it's a painterly screen print and there's like a bazillion yeah. colors in it, you probably won't see it as much. But you're absolutely right. And when we're printing, like a one color print is like a red flag, like a big <laughs> field of color. And we have a couple of these coming up. A big field of color where it's just going to show every imperfection. If a piece of lint gets in the wrong spot, if a fly flies in there and gets crushed, you know, whatever it is. Uh, we've done prints up to 220 different colors, and you, you know we can always fix it at some point. We were doing a large edition once of a print. It's like an edition of 300, and it was going to be 60 colors, a street scene, Parisian street scene by Michelle Delacroix. And Michelle Delacroix always puts a uh, dog Actually, Michelle Delacroix is the father of the owner of Axel Editions, and Axel, the, my former print shop, was named after the family dog. So there's oh, always God. this dog in every... So the, the story is we were printing, and uh, I was chroming, drawing all the films, and there's this giant area that wasn't printing, in, in my eye, like the size of a dime, right in the middle of the print. And I, you know, very, uh, let's just say distressed, talked to my colleague who was printing, like, how did you miss this giant thing in the middle? And he said, I thought it was going to be the dog. You know, <laughs> I thought you were, like, trapping for the dog. And, like, the dog's over here. So, but we knew that we had 40 more colors to print, right? It was no big deal. So this is the same thing with handling a print. You know, if it has a lot of color, a little, a little imperfection here or there will be lost. And you're right. The hardest colors are the, are the biggest, flattest areas of color. And it's true with also, I think, deckled edges. We're a fan of just straight trim, but a deckled edge is nice because of it. if the edge gets dinged, you can just create a little deckle. And no That's one, true. Right? You can sort of like pick it off, <laughs> the ding. Yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. Okay, so I, I, I hate to make you do this. Can you explain screen print in the original conception with the ruby lith and everything and how that works and then how it's changed over time? Do you no, mind? No, I don't mind at all. And I, and I come from a generation that learned all of it pre-computer. Right. So, um, and then, and use computer every day um, as well. So the, the screen printing process is a stencil process. A screen of various mesh counts is stretched over a frame. Originally, they'd be wood frames. Now, by and large, I use metal. The mesh might be anywhere from like 70 threads in an inch, which is like not a tennis racket, but it's like not going to stop a mosquito from flying into your room if you put it on your window. Up to, in our case, 420 threads per inch, which is finer than the sheets I sleep on. Um, you know, so the thread count, if you will. So the, and the, the amount of thread determines the deposit of, of ink. So if you have a lot of threads, you can put little precise details in a thin deposit of ink. And big coarse threads, you can put massive amounts of inks on something. So we select the mesh depending on what our application is. The traditional way of screen printing, as I was taught by Philip Von Rabe at the Ohio State University, is to paint out the screen with a stop out. So you would, you would, everywhere that you seal the mesh, ink won't go through, and everywhere you have open mesh, ink will go through. So imagine your screen door and, you know, the air is flowing through all those holes. And now if you slap a piece of paper on that, it's only the air, it's only going through where you have the open, open mesh. So that's the principle is to open and close that mesh. So traditionally, one might use paper to create a stencil on a screen and use the ink to hold the, the paper on the screen. So you could cut tissue into a shape, 
and ink that and the ink would hold the paper onto the screen. Eventually people started painting with uh, something that they could remove. These screens, once we put an image on, we print it, we take the image off, regardless if it's a handmade screen or a modern photo mechanically made screen. So for every color that you see in a print, a screen is made, that's our matrix. In the days before computers, we would hand paint out, and you could just use Elmer's glue. Uh, there's a wide variety of things you could use to keep the screen closed versus open. And the modern approach eventually became photomechanical. So you would coat the screen with a photosensitive emulsion, which by the way, is generally Elmer's glue. It's white, white glue, it's PVA that's been dyed and has a uh, photosensitive uh, chemical diazo put into it. So you coat the screen with a photosensitive emulsion and then you expose that to light with a, a, a positive film creating your stencil. So you expose the light everywhere that's black on the film blocks light and everywhere that's clear on the film allows light to pass through and that sort of catalyzes the photo emulsion. And everywhere that it's catalyzed, it becomes impervious to water. And everywhere that is blocked, does this make sense? <laughs> is everywhere yeah. that the light is blocked, just washes out with water, and we end up with a stencil. Um, a stencil on a mesh matrix. So uh, this is an old process that predates the books on the dawn of screen printing. Um, there's some great dawn of screen printing that puts the dawn of screen printing in the early 1900s. And there are, that's true in sort of Western approaches, but the original paper stencils were paper on a screen held by single threads that, you know, uh, of ink, uh, not sorry, single threads holding the paper to the frame and you would, you would sort of pounce the, you know, pounce the stencil. So the, the origins go back a long time. The, the era that I started at, we would, we would make films. If there was a photo images, we'd make them in a copy camera. And you, so if you would, we need to make half tones. We would put a photograph or a piece of art in a copy camera, and, and that would uh, that image would go through a lens and onto film. And, but before it hit film, it would go through something called a half tone screen, which was a filter. was a, was a sheet of film with dots on it. Each dot was 100% black in the absolute middle. 1% black is what I'm trying to say on the very outside. So every single dot in that half tone screen was a uh, continuous tone. Wait a minute. I always thought that the halftone dots, the little circles, were on, off, black or clear. So they are by the time they get on the film. So if you imagine a, a, the film being the thing that you're, the matrix you're shooting on your screen or putting on your, on your litho stone or, or your litho plate, or, yes, by then it's on, off. But now when we use uh, Photoshop, Illustrator, um, whatever your halftone rip software is to create a halftone dot, it's literally on or off. The computer, the math decides on or off. But in the copy, copy camera days, the line screen, and that's why I call them lines per inch, not DPI dots per inch, because the line screen didn't have to be dots. It could be lines. It could, as long as it could be squares. Oh. It could be whatever, right? Huh. The line screen was a, a filter that you would put on and it had dots that were these perfect gradients. So if the light was bouncing off something that is a white and going through the lens, it would have so much light that it would basically blow out the dot completely. It would overexpose that dot. If oh. not much light was bouncing off, then it, that the light couldn't penetrate the 100% dot, which is in the center of each dot, and couldn't penetrate the, the continuous tone gradient that surrounded the dot. So 
Is this, if this is making sense, no, it is. then kudos to everyone who this has made sense to. But imagine like, you know, a perfect gradation of a circle with very black in the center and not black at all. And the amount of light bouncing off the surface of the object you're recording would obliterate the dot. So you have this field where some, some areas would be black and so no light is bouncing off of those surfaces. So those dots became solid, right, and big. And then the white areas, the light is bouncing off and obliterating the dots, and they're becoming very tiny. So the dots sort of merge in the black areas, based kind of. They stay in the yeah. Well, yeah, they're they're touching each other. Yeah. The, the well, that's so that's my screen. question. So yeah. each dot, the one percent is abutting the next one yes. percent. Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. All right. All yeah. Right. It's a. <laughs> So you know, so you're yeah, so you're learning this stuff. And by the way, there's uh, also you you are filtering out CMYK at the same time by using the opposite colors. So you're filtering out everything but blue, right? Right. So that only the blue can come through, and you're using a filter to filter out everything but the magenta. So you're only getting the magenta. But then there's no way to filter out everything but the black, right? So that's why we don't use the word CMYK. The K stands for key line, because you would make a high contrast black and white photo to do your K, right? So you're just like, there's no way to filter out the black. So the key line, K is for key line. And that's the final thing that you put on this high contrast, little touch of black. Huh. I always thought the, the K was just for black. Yeah, black, yes, exactly. <laughs> or to distinguish, right? right. Yeah, yeah, it's at, so. But so Luther, who, how in the world did, without computers, did they make those screens back in the day, the uh, halftone? How did they make those with the this continuous? So, so the halftone right is pre-computer. So it, once you come get, come up with your dark, and so by the way, you're 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 taking a photo, right? It's going through the filter, your your line screen. You're get, then getting a piece of exposed film, and then you're running it through a developer, darkroom, tr traditional darkroom mechanics, dark uh, developer, a fixative, right? Stop bath, all that stuff. And then that you're using, at that point, you're exposing that on your screen. You coat your screen with a photosensitive motion and you're exposing that on your screen. I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly when people started using photosensitive emulsions, but it, it was the sort of thing where you would make your own photosensitive emulsion. You would buy the raw materials initially. You would buy um, polyvinyl acetate, uh, white glue, also known in the industry as Elmer's, right? So, <laughs> right? So you'd buy your Elmer's glue, or you'd buy your white glue, and you would uh, mix in your own diazo, your own oh, photosensitives. Wow. And then it would be like, if you've ever put a lump of Elmer's glue on something, it sort of dries like a yellowish amber color. Uh, and then if you wanted to see it, you'd add some dyes to it. So uh, photo emulsion for screens, the, the, the color of it, it could be any color, right? So origin story of that is there was a way of just making it and everyone just made it. So, wow. um, uh, but meanwhile, by the way, there were no computers. So when I learned, uh, with Jean-Yves Noble, I think he liked the fact that I entered, I used to run the photo mechanics, uh, for printmaking darkroom at Ohio state. So I got to do this stuff and Jean-Yves had a, a dark room and an enlarger. So I got to do a lot. We would like be handed a Donald bachelor little painting. And I would separate out the colors in the camera. Oh um, but then you're taking out those films and you're drawing on them and you're airbrushing on them and you're blocking them out with ruby lit and um, amber lit. And you're 
adding to the film that you've done in the copy camera. So that's the beautiful thing about that era was that every mark was made either in camera or by, by hand, and you were painting on the films. Um, to, to, to make sure that everything came through, you weren't to editorializing. Traps, to, keep, to, to trap colors so that there was no like, misregistration or you know, uh, airbrushing uh, acetate ink onto the acetate on the, the film so that you could get some gradient dots that weren't halftones. So when we started working at Excel, I was um, doing everything by hand, litho crayons on acetate. You take a photo, we had no enlarger at that time, so we, we would take a photo of the, of the painting or drawing or whatever, print it out and glue it to a piece of wood, and, like a piece of masonite, draw registration marks and just slap a piece of acetate on, draw, draw your registration marks and just draw the colors you saw one at a time. Meanwhile, I was working with Photoshop at home and like, wow, you know what? I think I'd do this all in Photoshop. So now using the color select tool and layers and Illustrator and Photoshop, you can really build a print. Just, and, and there's a whole generation that's all they know. Uh, but having the ability to draw on those things post is really important too. You know, that the human touch and the human mark of ink is really, it's hard to fabricate digitally. So even now with Photoshop and everything, you still go in and add we, in the trapping stuff? There's a lot. There's a lot. Huh. A lot that we're still do not adding in trapping. We try to do that oh. very quick in Photoshop. Sorry. But <laughs> one if one wants to like add some nuance and be spontaneous, yeah, we we will still draw and airbrush, uh airbrush in stuff, which is okay. a whole lost skill of airbrushing films. Oh gosh. You know. Okay, so now you've got this computer generated, dicked around with Photoshop situation, and you're printing out uh, films, mm -hmm. and then you're exposing them on your. So it's exposing easy, easier. Yep. It's very fast. It's yeah. very fast. In the as I mentioned, those days before um, before the computer, the chromists, the person drawing drawing the each color separation would have to draw as fast as the printers were printing if not faster and so there would become this press check moment where you're like i don't really like the way this is drawn right and then you would add to the film reshoot the screen or scrap the film in, entirely and start all over and and that would put down pr production here photoshop be like i need to tweak this quickly right quickly make edits there's no going back right you quickly make edits plan out five layers in advance sort of get a digital feel for the way the colors might look and uh, send that to print. Um, so the ease of the, of the color separation, it's just so fast now. And I, back in the days when I was doing everything by hand, some, some color, tricky colors I'd be up all night so that we could print it in the morning to meet the deadline, right? So you're drawing all night long and then, you know, there better not be, and you're scratching off things that you overdrew. You're scratching off with a razor blade, or you sharpen a chopstick and you rub it off. Um, there's all these like you're masking out with tape. You're peeling tape off. It it was a messy, slow process, but it had this. All the prints from that era have an aesthetic of that you know, mark making. Wow. So what happens when the thing that you are trying to the original image that you are trying to create into a print has inks that aren't like, you know, on the shelf. Like how, who, who does the color matching and is there any test other than the human eye? So there are ways to do computer 
matching of colors these days. We don't do that. We still use our eyes. We hand mix all the colors that we're going to print. Every ink company has your basic colors. And, and when I started, I, I started with cyan, magenta, yellow, black, white, and clear, and was attempted to make all the colors from that. But you're really limited because there's a lot of pigments that you can't get that way. And a lot of, you can't just do it all with those colors. So the beauty of screen printing, and well, well, let's just say all of the print process is going get a real can of a real phthalo, of a real uh, ultramarine um, and printing that. So little dabs of color, um, you know, you're slowly leaning in to what the color want. In, in screen printing, we never want to go too, too dark because you, you don't want to ever have to print to lighten up a color, but you can always print something to darken it. So you're always trying to get creep up on it, but not go over. If we're planning out something that might be 60 colors, uh, we start very quickly. We don't print lightest to darkest necessarily, which is how I was taught. We'll quickly get in our brightest white and our brightest black from the beginning uh, because we want that 100% white and 100% black to balance the, the image out. And we might reprint the black at the end and reprint the white at the end, but we need it in the beginning so that we can judge our blues, our green, all the value ranges of our colors and not at the end find out, and this is, I learned this the hard way, not at the <laughs> end find out when you put on your black that they're all wrong when compared to black. They're all too dark or too light when compared to your black. So um, we start quickly by getting our, our black and our white point down. And when a color isn't working, you can go to the pigment store, right? Where we have several here. My favorite is Gare Paint and Pigment. Um, and they, you know, are purveyors of fine pigments to a lot of the arts community here. You can buy them online. They have some of the last supplies of certain pigments. There might be, and I'm, this, is, this isn't literal, but they might have like a blue that was only made in, the 19, in 1958 for two years of Porsche, you know, making, and they might have the last like drum of that blue on the planet. Right, and then sometimes they do. This is the last batch of this color, you know. And after this, it's gone. It's hard to think that in this day and age, that some a color could go extinct. Right? It is hard to believe. You know? but, but there's so know, many companies that are like T W Smith. Is it T W Smith? Daniel Smith. T -T, excuse yeah. me. Like, wait, what? Why? How can you stop? Don't close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, the the, the real uh, the realness of buying like bulk calling in and finding out that you don't have your, your favorite black etching ink, right? And they have to make it for you. And then, but they need enough orders to make it, right? They're not gonna make one can of ink, right? They have to have enough to make the, because you're using these mills and they're grinding pigments and, you know, they have to have enough orders to make a big batch, right? So, um, and that's true with the pigments. And when you get into bespoke pigments, you know, they're made by, you know, giant chemical firms. And so, you know, there, there might be a, a time when they make a bespoke color for Porsche, right? And then there's no need when Porsche stops making, using that color. So it's really interesting to think. Also, you know, traditional, we had a color of blue that was coming out of Japan that we can no longer get. And it was a blue that was darker than our black. Oh. It was called Malori. And it was uh, a really, like the most, the deepest blue you can imagine and deeper than any black we could print. And it's just weird so we would like make these blacks that were actually 90% malory with a touch of black oh, wow. so they could get that added but then i guess the, the pigment to make that stopped being available so we've never you know that that color of blue disappeared from our palette um around 2005 or something you know 
And and by the way, it was meant to because you touched that. It was went back to touching inks and handling prints. If you touched that print the wrong way, you had a blue finger, no matter how how long it was drying for. Oh wow! So when you're working on an, an edition of three hundred, say prints, and you don't finish that day, and you have to remix those colors. <laughs> Yeah, no, you don't let that happen. No, you, okay. right, you don't. So you, yeah, yeah. No, you. Um, that's like your nightmare, and it does yeah. happen. Uh, and it really happens. Mo we try to overmix, so we're sh sure to have enough color to make it through the run. Uh, and sometimes, you know, your big runs, you might be making a five-gallon bucket of of color. And the last thing you want is like three quarters of the way to run out of color, and then have to remix it because you're you. Even though we're really good at it. We're going to get there 95 percent of the way and we really pride ourselves on every print being the same maybe we get in a 99 so when you know you're running low you stop everything you're doing so that you can like we need two gallons and i have one gallon left so you make another gallon and then you mix them and then you have the hybrid oh, between okay. the two batches right but that i learned the hard way I, I did a suite of prints for kara walker the backgrounds of the print uh, it was a portfolio, Emancipation Approximation, I think is the title of it. And they had a bunch of grays. So I wanted all the grays for all the editions backgrounds to be the same. So I mixed something like 15 gallons of this gray and started printing. I didn't realize that the color oxidized, like could, could that colors could oxidize too. So I was into like the second edition and the gray was ever, it was the same batch of ink. Like I mixed them all and poured from one, Five gallon bucket into the other, you know, I really took a like a whole morning making sure every buck was the same, but they shifted over the over the long haul of the edition. So even there, just because you made it one day, you can't be hundred percent assured that it's the next day it's gonna be the same. And when you hand mix pigments, some pigments have charges, they are like electric charges, let's call them magnetic forces, and they don't like other pigments. So they can self-separate overnight and actually we did a print with alfredo yar once where we did the perfect first proof of this beautiful red the hammocks red he approved it and then we additioned it and we came back the next day and it was all marbleized and we're like well that's weird i don't know what how we we must have done something wrong let's just do it again we did it again it marbleized and it wasn't until the third time we realized that the two reds we were mixing together didn't like each other and in the time it took to pull the print pick up the squeegee and move to the puddle of ink to flood it, they would self-segregate and this no man's land of like muddy brown was like the stray pigments that neither party of red would adopt. And when you flooded, it would create these streaks. So the solution was to create a giant screen and have this huge flood where no image was. And by the time you got to the image, the ink would be mixed. So we'd oh. mix it. Anyway, God. so there's a lot of that. And part of the way, the I didn't mention this. I went into school thinking I was going to be a scientist. <laughs> um, so, like, this is, like, part of the joy. It's like, oh, that's so weird. Isn't that and, cool? Right? And, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> why is this happening? And then you start calling people and you're finding this stuff out. Um, <laughs> and every day it's like something. Every day it's something like that, too. I've been doing this every day since the day I fell in love with print, you know. And uh, every day there's some new, nuancey thing to learn. You know, and uh, we don't make the same mistakes every day, but we make mistakes every day, you know, and they're just more creative and more expensive mistakes. You know? Ah, right, right, right. <laughs> Is there a plan in the print shop of Powerhouse Arts to publish? 
That's a great question. We are currently publishing our first print with our artist in residence. His name's Ivan Ford. I can hardly wait to release it to the public because it's a hybrid, you can imagine, right? It's like one of the beauties of publishing is that, and uh, just a little record keeping, I and Glenn Baldridge, we started a company called Fourth Estate to publish work from 2005 to 2015, I believe. I might be butchering those years, but we, we started uh, Fourth Estate as a way of working with artists that we wanted to see make prints. And you know, I was in a print shop doing contract work, and he was uh, at CRG Gallery meeting wonderful artists. And so we we ended up, you know, after hours getting a six pack, hanging out, making prints, right, um, and building some sweat equity in the fourth estate. And and I have to say, the beauty of publishing as a printer is you can really say like, here's some, an idea I have, and what artists would would be responsive to it, and and we can take a chance because it's. It's our own work. So this next edition with Ivan Ford, hopefully coming out in the next few months, um, is going to be a hybrid between like three processes. Um, so it's going to be fun. And then we have some other uh, projects coming up with Julie Wachtel and Alex Dodge that are going to be some fun, cool. fun experimental prints as well. Cool. So we met to speak of the future. And we have some future, some future techniques that are going to come out that I'm really excited to reveal. Um, so more on that later. <laughs> Yeah, Glenn Baldrige came and uh, vended at the Baltimore Contemporary Print Fair at the museum. He shared a booth with Phil Sanders. Yep. Yeah. I remember that well. And yeah, no, I, I I was hoping you guys would keep publishing. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, um, when Fourth Estate ended, we never had a brick and mortar space. We relied on all the print fairs, such as yours, to, to really uh, seed the money for the next year's publication. And we did not adapt well to the online sales platform. We really relied on like in-person impulse buying, <laughs> which worked for many years. Um, you know, at the EAB fair, you know, you would, I think Baltimore sent a bus down of collectors and the Baltimore, like the collectors would roll in and they would spend like cash money. And you were like going and you were buying paper the next day with that money. Nice. And so we, you know, and then when that slowly segued into like, can I have your card? I want to think about this purchase. That was sort of where we didn't, like, you know, um, not having a brick and mortar space, not truly being online salespeople. Um, now, I think there's a lot of really amazing publishers who are really strictly online. Uh, Avant Art, GRP Edition. There's a bunch. There's a bunch that are really, uh, like, really good online sales platforms uh, for prints. Um, and I think that the beauty, once again, of print is it's multiple multiple natures. So I think there's a new day of online print sales. Yeah, we can only hope. Yeah, I did want to ask you about your feelings of the state of the state, as it were. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I talked to most of the guests about it just because, you know, things are shifting and changing, not only because of the pandemic, but just because of shops retiring. And, mm -hmm. you know, I feel yeah, like I'm worried. A, I'm worried. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the state of the state, in my mind, is strong. I think education is the key to the state of the state. We need, as creators in the medium, to really spend more time explaining what makes a fine art print a fine art print, whatever the means of, of manufacture are. I don't think that we've done a very good job of that. Because of our, our, lack of, our lack of ability to communicate its specialness, I think we've missed a generation of collectors who've really worked on collecting toys, limited edition toys, 
shoes, street art, quote unquote, this like collectability mindset, flipping culture, limited purchase, two prints per purchase, you know, we were using an old paradigm. I think we're now in a state because we have social media, we can really focus on what makes fine art prints and, and fine art in general special. And so, and, and it should be our mission, right? And thank you for hosting me because I'm <laughs> passionate about this and it needs to be talked about. And the more people that make, the more people that can handle, that can sniff and smell. I mean, that's a huge part of it for me. It's like the, the more that the nuance becomes apparent. Yeah. I think that's true. I'm also I, saying, like, as I'm saying this, and there's 8,000 units of condos going up around us on the Gowanus Canal. There's an 80-story condominium that's ready. To, oh, 80 stories. I 80, joke that that's yeah. more white walls going up at any time than probably all the museums in New York put together. If one thinks about this development as like a Gold Coast for hanging stuff in frames on walls, you know, uh, you know, that's really how you have to think about the opportunities, too. Um, Sounds yeah. like you need to put on a print fair, Luther. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> more on that later. <laughs> yes, we're in discussions, people, just so yeah, you know. Yeah. Haven't figured it out yet, but we will. No, it will, <laughs> will happen. Um, you know, and so I think really having people understand what collecting is and fine art. And, you know, I had a print collector once tell me, I'm like, how do you collect? And he's like, if I like it and I can afford it, I buy it. You know, and so... As, as someone with no money, I would go into fairs and like, wow, look at this print. It's only 500 bucks. And, you're, you know, and for me, as a printmaker, that was a lot of money, but 500 bucks now. And I'm looking back and kicking myself for not purchasing the, the Cristo beautifully. There was a Cristo print that I won't forget because it instructs a lot of the way I make prints now. But it was a little sculpture. And I'm like, why didn't I get that at the time? I loved it. And I stood in front of it for 15 minutes, right? Oh. And why didn't I just figure out how to get it? Um, so I think, you know, a lot of the, the limited edition aspect of, of print and that, that the new sales platform are buying into, these time releases and, you know, there's only this amount of time. Buy is like the new buying bug, you know, it's like they're buying into people's collecting mentalities. I don't think we've been good at that. As an industry. I mean, talking, you know, the um, discussions about quote unquote originality, which bumps up against multiplicity, of course, you know, it's, it's where I just had a conversation last week with Susan Tallman about this very idea of what the fine art original, you know, the, the misnomer original and all that stuff and how that it was really interesting because she wrote in her amazing book, The Contemporary Print from 1996, about the print council picking up this idea of the original print. And that's the term that yeah. they were using to try and put forward fine art print collecting, that it was a mistake because prints can never be as original as unique works in painting, sculpture, and drawing. Like it's, you already set yourself up for failure because you will never be that original. Yeah. And it's so hard explaining. Right. 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 Well, here, here's why it's original. Yeah. 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 And even the word print, you know, I want to circle back to because yeah, it's in the vernacular, but it, you know, it, when I Google other podcasts that have to do with print, I'm getting the the t-shirt print people. I'm getting the, you know, the, you name it. So print doesn't only mean us. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. Yeah. 100%. I um, wish there was better vocabulary, honestly. No, we, and we should, we should own up to, we haven't done a great job of this. And I once, I think it was um, Southern Graphic Council 
West Virginia. Dave Hickey was invited to speak. And it was a packed auditorium, and he really cut into us big time. Um, and I was like a graduate student, and all the students are clapping and giggling and cheering, and professors are getting up and walking out. And he was like, he came in there to shake things up. He was like, you have lost your mercantile roots. Your noses are too close to your plates. You're missing the bigger picture of what the art form is. And this is me, you know, like... 25 years later trying to I've looked off for this speech so many times I can't oh. find it as someone just basically entering this industry the fact that people are booing and getting up and and leaving is making me embrace this as a <laughs> as a young person even more like wow this person has is a tap the pulse of something right but you know I think without the full ability to remember what the speech was the, the idea of fine art prints as original as being something that uh, wasn't, was a, a completely removed from the rest of the world of printing, was, uh, in Dave Hickey's mistake, a big mistake. And so I, I, when coming to New York and being asked to print on glass for an uh, architectural window or, or whatever it is, there's so many things that print can be. And it was really you know, eye-opening for me because silkscreen is this very adaptable thing smushing some ink onto whatever you can. Um, so, yeah. So I think that, you know, we embrace print here as, like, part of a sculptural process, too. You know, it's so it's not a one thing. And the idea of, of something being original, we don't even bring up. Like, yeah, we made ten of these things, or we made one of these. And when we, I guess when you make a unique print, it is an original. Right, right, right. <laughs> Where do you see you in the shop in five years? There's a lot that we have plan for the next five years uh, and are hoping to roll out. Much of what we're trying to do is, as I mentioned before, about educating the public about fabrication and what that means. And also how fabrication, arts fabrication can, uh, we don't want to be like an alien ship that's landed in this community of Gowanus. We want to serve the needs of the artists here. So fabrication and how that develops over the next five years with the community needs is going to be really important. A large part of what we're trying to do is also some workforce development so that people who didn't necessarily get a chance to go to art school and take a continuing education in print uh, can get access to some skills so they can pursue some of their own making. So that is being rolled out over the next five years in, in sort of uh, spits and spurts as we develop robust programming and the development needs, the fundraising needs to support them. There is a huge need in Brooklyn and I imagine in most people's neighborhoods to have resources available for people to make art and make mistakes that mm. don't make, don't, so this is a key, key thing that we all have to acknowledge is that Often when we are in the process of making, mistakes are costly. And if you're uh, an artist that is making a choice between making a $10,000 commissioned work and rent, right? Um, like There's this balancing act between how self-funds. So we're also trying to make an environment where because we have a very thoughtful approach to making we can either circumnavigate mistakes or that mistakes aren't as costly, right? So that, you know, the, the print, you have, we have eight season printers in the print shop and, they, and we've made millions of mistakes. So our hope is to navigate 
away from mistakes, but also navigate into why mistakes are fun, right? So I, this is a very roundabout way of saying like artists shouldn't have to make a choice between paying their rent and making their art. So we're also trying to figure out how we can open opportunities to a, a wider audience of makers. And so that's an ongoing project, right? That'll never end. Right. And it's, it's just never going to end. But then you're stepping into Paros Arts, which, you know, has master craftspeople in ceramics. So you're like, well, wow, wouldn't this be great if we could put a little bit of this chemical X from the ceramics into it? So, and then we lean in on, on their expertise. The five-year plan has, we have um, a small metals shop, um, jewelry that we're hoping to open soon. We have a small wood shop and we have some ancillary departments that aren't activated that we're stewarding that we hope to open. And in the next year, I, I can't speak to some of the initial entries into the building that are going to happen, but over the next year, there's some really exciting programming that's going to be happening. That's cool. There's a, a institution in Baltimore, a nonprofit called Creative Alliance, and they have a program where artists get into a lottery and they win or are granted a three-year studio living space so that no rent, you know. Yeah. And that, Amy Sherald, actually, the first time I did a studio visit with her, she was she had one of those studios and she was living there in this little loft space up above it. And, um, you know, I th feel like that's a model that can be transformative for people. Not that you guys built that into your thing, but something to think about. <laughs> yeah, well, there are some really interesting um, subsidized studio spaces in New York, and I know artists who enter into those agreements, and they're, they're, they are life-changing. For an artist that is, these, these, as you said, these are transformative moments when you can give, any, give someone access to space uh, that is not in their home, that they're not necessarily paying for, then they can, they can choose to buy materials that they might not take a chance with if they have to pay the rent. And I'm not saying that's, uh, you know, we're currently figuring out how to subsidize projects ourselves. For a while, um, pre-pandemic, we briefly entered in a pay-what-you-want way of working in the print shop, which was... Uh, very exciting, and it was short run because of the pandemic. And then post-pandemic, we were a little bit more targeted with uh, subsidizing where we pay for 50% of the production costs, um, but not necessarily materials. And so I think that, you know, hopefully that is something we, we can bring back. It, it's important to note that we are also in a time period where materials themselves are really getting hard to find. There's paper shortages, there's ink companies going out of business, there's currently a foam core shortage that um, there's a giant pandemic consolidation of foam core manufacturers and they decided to, from what I hear, cease all production of foam core so they could just use the overstock and then you know, there was no foam core. Wow. So if you're also talking about buying power of like, you know, buying bulk, right? As an or various arts organizations can buy reams of paper and, and big lots of paper or be donated, hint, hint, paper companies, donated paper. Hopefully that's a way that we can subsidize work as well. You know, and, and we, we swim in ink that we've made for projects. And as we mentioned earlier, we make more ink than we are going to print because we are afraid of running out. Uh, so we also, you know, where, do, where does that ink lie and how can that ink be distributed? You know, it's water-based ink of a high quality. And that's something you can do as a, a larger arts organization. Have a repurposed room, you know, where materials that aren't needed anymore can go and other people 
can scrap yard. Mm. Oh, nice. We don't have that in play yet, but that is something. Oh, that's a great that, idea. That one can do, yeah. In your um, thought about education being paramount, what can people like me do to help the ecosystem? I mean, I'm like yelling as loud as I can through the podcast, sure. but, <laughs> but like. And, and organizing fairs. That's beyond. Yeah. Yes. Right? yes. <laughs> it's a tough, it's really a unique question for each. I think it's everyone has to address that in their own skill set. Um, so there needs to be a showcase. We need to be able to talk about the art form and we need to be able to create those showcase moments. So IFPDA and before that EAB fair here in New York where people would come to the come come to New York to, to experience print. But then you would go into the general public and even my printmaking students like this is a print fair weekend you really should go right but you need that added enticement of what that means like your tickets are free i'm paying for your access uh still not enough to get people to go to the fairs who aren't implicitly interested in that so i think that merging uh this concept of multiple and print is really important that we're not working in isolation that people can come and to appreciate one thing and it get exposed to another. And that's what museums and galleries do so well, right? They, you're coming in to see uh, one art form, but it being exposed to the entire history of the art form at the same time. And I don't think you can do this on your own, obviously, Anne, but uh, we really, you know, as advocates, as people who profess, I think that uh, we need to create as many opportunities for people to engage in the tactile quality of these things as a, as a museum would, right? So that becomes difficult in a landscape where, uh, you know, at least in New York, it's a repeat of Dwayne Reed Starbucks, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever the repeat is, there's not a lot of, of places to have educational facilities as to art, right? So then you're learning about this through our major institutions, our museums, our galleries, and our, our art schools. However, not everyone feels comfortable in those spaces. So how does one make comfortable spaces? I, I once uh, was a sole uh, person working a gallery, and we opened the doors, and people would still stop at the door and ask if they could come in. Right? This is a gallery, right? And I was amazed that people don't feel comfortable entering into these spaces where I just nonchalantly walk in, start shaking hands, and and talking shop, right? So, but by and large, most people don't feel comfortable, right? So these are not these are not spaces that we we create that are inviting, and so I think that where people do feel comfortable are uh, and it's grueling to work these week after week are street fairs, craft fairs, mm. are are, air, are areas there where you can buy a hot dog, and you can look at art at the same time. Making ourselves available is really important. In New York, we have a lot of zine. Zines are doing it really well. Uh, zine, you know, zine fairs, and you know, you're contributing to zines, you're making zines, you're purchasing zines, and it is a culture unto itself, and they know how to sustain themselves as a culture. At $5 a pop. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and, you know, prints, you can do amazing prints for $5 a pop, right? <laughs> but you can also do amazing prints for $3,000 a pop. So how does one get one creating this precious, unique things at a lower entry point, too. And, and I think the fortunate thing in New York with gallery real estate is not going to be spent on a $50 print. That wall, that wall space is precious. Those rents those galleries pay are astronomical, and they need to be selling high-ticket items. They don't want to sell 300 
$100 things. That's a lot of emails and a lot of swiping cards and a lot of effort um, for, you know, what is a basically a low return. So as a, as a group, we have to really create more moments where we can exchange with the general public what it is our craft and, and, and have a good entryway, right? Right. The gig poster was a phenomenal uh, way of, of people to collect fine art, well, fine art quality print because if you're buying your favorite rock band, it's printed by a silkscreen shop that loves the process and is creating unique and beautiful, and the art is usually very compelling, right? And it's uh, a poster, right? So they, we're, we're talking about, once again, I'm like now skirting around like posters and fine art, right? Uh, we now have uh, here Poster House in, in New York, uh, one of uh, our newer print museums, and they do a really good job of educating uh, the public on what makes poster design so important. Mm. And um, next time you're in New York, general listeners, Poster House, by the way, it's free on Fridays. Where um, is it? Poster House is an incredible, incredible institution for engaging in some of the best printing and graphic design you can imagine. Um, so check them out. But they are systematically approaching what culturally these uh, print forms do to us, right? And, and eras of print and eras of design and eras of in, impactful messaging, right? Art doesn't quite do that way the way posters do, right? Um, so, you know, it's a different energy. Yeah, no, posters sit at a very interesting point in between commercial and... Yeah. Fine art. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. So is there anything we haven't covered that between Miranda and me you forgot to say? Oh, God. There's a, there's a lot that I'd like to... I have some... We're going to have a part a, three. A, yeah, we're going to have the part three. I've got some, like, fine art printing conspiracy theories to get what? into. No, I will that. No, I do. There, I, there, I do. I, that's for another one. I, we have to have a... We'll have a sidebar to do some history of printmaking as uh, as mercantile roots and as a great fine art hustle um, from the 80s and and there's so that some there's some there's a lot of topics in print because you know image making um, as your podcast greatly covers is so diverse right yeah. and um, it's such a big big industry so yeah Okay. I, I do. I do want to talk to you about this. All right. We just do a theory. bonus yeah, episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I need some uh, fact checkers, and I need some accountants, <laughs> some historical accountants on this stuff. And there's a yeah. There's a okay. All right. Side, side story. Hmm. Sounds like yeah. a book. <laughs> I know. It, yeah. Or a movie. Or All a movie. right. I'm, I'm thinking big here. There you get go. To the, got to get everyone. And Who's going to play really you? Really nice print conspiracy theory will really get people collecting prints. <laughs> Who's going to play you in the movie? Oh, I, I was I, I was uh, I was a baby during this time, so I'm innocent of all of this historical <laughs> <laughs> More on this later. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for coming on Plate Mark Luther. There's obviously wonderful things happening up there. And next time I'm in New York, you're on my list. So okay. Yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, and I assume you you welcome other people to come and take a tour. Yes, absolutely. We have a, back to the non-gatekeepy kind of way of working, we have uh, artist experience coordinators who are managing tours of the facilities because we can't have tours constantly. People constantly want to come through there. So they're managing some of the tour dates. Um, I'm not sure when you're going to release this, but September 23rd uh, of this year, we're having an outdoor event here at Powerhouse that is open to the public. 
Um, we have high expectations for what that might be. As we steward these spaces and they get more and more populated, there'll be more and more ways of accessing this building, uh, not just through our events and our tours, but also through um, other workshops that'll be running. Um, yeah, so more of that come. You can join our mailing list at powerhousearts.org if you want to stay informed. Can one become a member, a supporting member? Of- yes, one can become a supporting member. There is a donate button on our website. There's many different ways that we are, are looking for sponsorship uh, and, or I should say partnership, or I, I don't even know the vernacular because I don't swim well in these waters. Um, but <laughs> uh, yes, there's multiple ways. And if, if you're out there considering donating to an arts organization, we have a robust way of supporting the arts uh, in vision for the future. Well said there, Mr. Spokesperson of Powerhouse. (laughs) That's that's awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, so on behalf of Miranda and Hello Print Friend and me and Platemark, thank you for doing your twofer uh, interview with us. I I think it's, yeah. I mean, it's so exciting to see this new space opening up and and I see great things in your future. So it's it's a thrill for us. Thank you. And I'll see you in person soon. You will. All right. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Luther Davis of Powerhouse Arts. Hopefully you've gone over to Miranda's podcast, my sister podcast, Hello Print Friend, and listened to his origin story. I think together you're going to get a real good feeling for Luther and all of the wonderful work he's doing. He's been at it a long time and is as big a cheerleader for the print ecosystem as I am. Thank you to him for being such a willing and wonderful guest. And as usual, a thank you to Michael Diamond for the use of his original music. And a thank you to Dan Fury of Extension Audio for helping me with some early editing and sound adjustments. I have no idea what I'm doing with sound. It's so opaque to me. All right. We will see you next time. 